Well, good morning. I could kind of get used to this one service thing. I'm waking up later. It's not a bad way to go. Uh, this morning, we're going to be picking up uh, actually an interesting continuation of what we've been talking about. We're going to be looking in Colossians chapter 1 at something called the Christ Hymn. And during our Advent series leading up to Christmas, we were actually looking at the songs contained in the gospel that anticipated the coming of Christ and celebrated that. And by God's great wisdom and grace and not my clever planning, we're actually looking at another song that fast forwards and looks at the big picture of who Jesus is. And this, this particular passage is kind of the central point of Paul's argument in the book of Colossians. In the, in the city of uh, the Colossian people, there have been false teachers that have been coming in. And they've been suggesting that, you know, Jesus is great. He's, he's a good guy, but is he really enough? Is he really everything you need? I mean, it's a big, crazy, chaotic world out there. Is he really big enough and strong enough to satisfy all your needs? And Paul addresses that with a resounding yes in this passage that we're going to read today. And I want you to particularly listen for words like all or every or all things to get the scope and the magnitude of the argument that's being made here about the sufficiency of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. The words will also be on the insert in your bulletin, uh, as well as, if everything works, hey, there it is on the screen behind me. Uh, listen along as we read the very Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you. These are lofty words, incredible truth that you've given to us. Help us to understand them well. I know I am inadequate to the task, but by your Spirit, communicate your truth to us. Move in our lives, move in our hearts. Give us a vision for how incredibly sufficient, how overabundant Jesus is for all of our needs. Be with us, we ask. Teach us through your word. And we lift this up in his awesome name. Amen. Well, we're we're at a very... uh, interesting between time in life, right between Christmas and New Year's. And I don't know if your experience was like mine, but at the holidays, I take every opportunity to basically eat whatever food is put in front of me. 
So if I'm at a party, my basic philosophy is this. There's a lot of things here. I'm not going to know what's the best unless I try everything. So it kicked off with a young adults party last week where I did, I think I sampled everything there. Moving on to Christmas dinner, the leftovers, I took every opportunity to, you know, make these pants fit a little bit tighter. And uh, apparently it's, uh, I was not the only one who got in on the act because our dog, Bodley, uh, I think it was on Christmas Day, she ate an entire bag of Hershey's Kisses, which it was milk chocolate. She's okay. But chocolate's not great for dogs. She ate the whole bag, including the very pretty green, red, and silver foil wrappers, which I'm sure we have not seen the last of. Pray for us. But we're at this interesting place where we have prepared well, if you're like me, for the New Year's resolutions that need to come where I am going to run five miles every day, I am not going to eat sugar, I'm going to avoid pizza and ice cream and all the things that make life worth living. And that's probably going to last until about January 1st in the afternoon. But we all do it. We all kind of take stock of our lives and like, you know, what do we need to improve? What's missing? What doesn't seem right that I need to fix? Well, I'm going to be more organized this year. I'm going to make time for, for family, for the things that really matter. Or, you know, I don't really feel good about the way I look, so I'm going to do these five things to adjust it. And we, we're always feeling like maybe we're missing something, that there's something more we need. And if we can make the right change, life's just going to kind of fall into place with us. And New Year's resolutions aren't bad, and sometimes it's helpful to take stock. But it's, it's a theme of life where we often find ourselves looking around and saying, is this, is this enough? What, are, what am I missing? Because if I can find the right thing, the right attitude, the right advice, the right life situation, things are going to be all right. They'll be better. And it's the same trap that the church of Colossians was falling into. That begs the question, you know, is Jesus really enough Do we maybe need more? Do we need to find something else to kind of tack on there? Jesus is good, but also if I can have the job I really want or control or a peaceful family or whatever it happens to be, we're always searching for more and asking the question, is this enough? And thankfully, Paul gives us a very clear answer. God has spoken pretty definitively on the subject, and we're going to go through and look at that clearly. The answer is yes. Now, Being not so distantly out of seminary, I came up with a very clever outline that alliterated with a bunch of U's and stuff. But basically, we're going to go through and just ask four questions of the passage. Who is Jesus? What has he done? How has he done it? And who has he done it for? And I'll I'll tell you what they are, the little fill in the blanks, so that those of you that need to write that in can get there too. But we're just going to walk through and look at what is this teaching us about Jesus? And hopefully we leave with a picture of Jesus that is big enough to sustain all that life throws at us. When the first question is, who is Jesus? He is the one with an undeniable reign over everything that is. We're going to see that he reigns over creation. He reigns over his church and he reigns over new creation. If you'll look with me starting in verse 15, we're just going to go through and say, what, is it, what do each of these clauses say and what do they mean? He is the image of the invisible God. God is so magnificent, so holy, man can't see him. 
In the Old Testament, when he was going to reveal himself to Moses, he hid Moses in kind of a crag in the rock and let Moses see his back as he went by. That kind of holiness. He couldn't be in his presence. He couldn't see God face to face. And the gift we have in Jesus is, here's what God looks like in human form. This is the very image of God himself who walked among us. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, to be clear, what that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that Jesus was created. In the ancient world, firstborn was often used to signify reign, rule, or authority. So when it says he is the firstborn over all creation, it means he is the ruler of everything that is, of all creation. For by him, all things, there's that nice little phrase again, for by him, all things were created. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. We often think as God the Father, uh, as the creator, which is appropriate. And Jesus is the means of creation. Through him, everything that is, exists. And uh, thankfully, Colossians, in case we didn't understand what all things meant, it spells it out quite clearly for us. Whether things in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So it's kind of covers everything that is visible, invisible, heaven, earth, powers. Everything that exists was made through Jesus. You can kind of see Paul's argument stacking up whether or not he's enough. Okay, he's kind of painting a clear picture. All things, all things were made through him and all things were made for him. We like to say around Orangewood that it's not about us. Well, this is kind of one of the places that we get it from. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of Jesus. It's for him, everything that exists. And that phrase in there about the powers and the rulers and the authorities, uh, in ancient times, that probably would have been understood as spiritual powers. And probably spiritual powers at least consisting of darkness too. The things that scare you and threaten your life. Those things are under the reign of Christ as well. Those things are not escaping his authority, his rule, and his power. He is the one who reigns over all of creation. Every star, every universe, every molecule, every ant, all things. It is an all-encompassing rule that Jesus has. It continues on. And he is before all things. This is another reason we know he's not created, because he was there before there was anything. When God existed before he made the world, Jesus was there. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Paul just kind of keeps piling it on, trying to get us to the point where our brain is ready to explode. He made all things. He was before all things. And he is the one that makes gravity work. He is the one that holds atoms together. He is the one that makes the universe continue spinning on as it should. He holds everything together right now, actively. Well, that's kind of a big deal. He truly reigns over everything. Before all things, made all things, and holds all things together. Then Paul moves on. Okay, he's Lord of creation. He's also head of the church, his body. Myself, Jeff, Joe, we're not the head of Orangewood. And if we've led you to believe that, we're sorry. Jesus is the head of Orangewood. Jesus is the head of every true church. He is the one we look to. He is the one who leads us, whether it's in Alabama or Albania. 
Jesus is the head of his church wherever it is found. And it's interesting because Jesus tends to exercise his rule through the church. It's probably not how I would have designed it. For God to exercise his reign and his rule and to bring about his justice and his mercy and his love through knuckleheads like me, I'm like, I probably would have been like, whoa, okay, maybe you should rethink that a little bit. But he's the ruler of all universe and he has established his church to be one of the primary vehicles where he establishes that rule, where he blesses the world through that. He's the ruler of creation. He's the ruler of his church. And he's the ruler of new creation. In verse 18, we continue on. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now that's some pretty good news. You can basically break down the story of human history into kind of four big panels. There's creation. Everything is good. God has made it. Man and God are in right relationship. Things are humming along great. Then there's the fall. When mankind rebels against God and says, you know what, I'd rather do it my way, even though that's horrible and worse, and it brings a curse upon all of creation. Death, disease, destruction enter in. A curse comes on everything that exists. Creation, fall, then Christ comes and brings redemption. In the last panel, consummation or fulfillment, it's when he's going to come back and restore all things. And this little phrase... He is the beginning, means it has started. When Jesus rose from the dead, death, sin, and destruction were finished. They were destroyed. Their power still exists, but it was a promise that one day these things are going to be eradicated because Jesus won, because death couldn't contain him. That's what it means when it says, He is the beginning. All the things that are wrong and broken in this world are on a ticking clock. It is as if Christ is saying, cancer, you're not going to last. Hard relationships, you are not long for this world. Death, destruction, the things that plague us and make existence difficult, you will not win the day. He is the beginning. It has started and he will see it through to completion because he's the Lord of the universe. There is nothing that will stop this new creation from being brought in. Oh, what hope we have. I don't know how your Christmas was. I know for a lot of people, holidays are hard. I have a dear friend who has a really hard time enjoying Christmas because of abuse they experienced as a child. It's just hard. Some of you, this is the first Christmas without someone you love dearly. For some of you, you are hoping for peace and joy and you got family strife and fighting. Maybe you were alone. Christmas may have been a dark time. And this promise, he is the beginning, means that in the darkest night, dawn has broken. The light is coming and nothing will hold it back. There is nothing that is wrong in this world that is strong enough to resist the new creation that Christ is ushering in when he rose from the dead. It will happen. And because of that, we should be people with immense hope. It doesn't mean we don't walk through hard times. It doesn't mean we don't long to see that fully, but it means we know it is coming because the one who reigns over all of creation, over his church, and over new creation 
has guaranteed it. Paul continues as if he weren't building enough of an argument already. For in uh, his conclusion is that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All that is God is in Christ. Basically the shorthand of that, he is God himself. And the conclusion of this vast resume, that he is the Lord over all things, that he reigns over all things, is that he should be preeminent. Okay, do we have anyone here who has graduated from or is currently attending Covenant College? Okay, I'm embarrassing you all now. It's our theme verse, that in all things Christ would be preeminent. That's the only reason I know what the word preeminent means. But it means primary. It means that in everything, he should be first. Because that's the only conclusion you can draw. When someone is the Lord of everything that has been made and is restoring every good thing, I think I'll put you in fourth place behind me, myself, and I. No! He should be primary in everything because that's the only rightful position he occupies. It's a clear picture. He's got to be first. That's the only way our life works as it's supposed to. And this passage is hard for some of us because it's so anti-compartmentalization. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I like my boxes. I like my church box. I like my job box. I like my family box. I like my recreation box. Some of us, myself included, we've got the box we hope no one knows about. We've got it nice and neatly parsed out. And Jesus comes in and kind of flings the boxes on the floor and says, Nope, I am over all of it. Every aspect of your life, I am Lord over. I have something to say to, and it is better if I am in it. And if we're going to be honest, we don't always like that. Sometimes we like the idea of a little God because he's not as messy. He doesn't meddle around as much. We kind of like the God that we can call on when we want him to show up. We kind of like the God that comforts us. But sometimes the idea of a huge God who reigns over every aspect of our life, well, both of us can't be Lord of our life at the same time. Sometimes we like the idea of Jesus staying in the manger and being small and cute and docile. But the good news, the wonderful news is that's not an option for us. He is the Lord of the universe. We are not offered the option of having a small God. Praise God, because a small God can't give us what we need. A small God cannot bring the new life, cannot destroy the brokenness of this world. We have a God who's the Lord of the universe. And what does that God do? He brings a reconciliation that is unbelievable, that is unfathomable, that that makes our brains want to explode. Now, we're, we're probably not used to seeing someone with a lot of power use it well. Not always. There's a lot of examples of abused power. I mean, from politicians, world leaders, everything. We often see that when people get in power, especially when they get close to absolute power, they behave badly. It's easy to pick on, but one example that pops up in the news is North Korea. And their leader has a lot of power. And how has he used that power lately? He executed his uncle and he invited Dennis Rodman to his country. (laughs) Just saying... A lot of uses of power that don't really make sense. But what do we see here? The one who flung the stars into space, the one who holds all things together, how does he use his power? He used his power 
to fix what we have broken. The good creation that we have messed up and marred by our choices, he says, I'm going to make right. I am going to restore all things. You see it in the first half of verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. All things. There's that phrase again. Everything is going to be restored. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to receive salvation because Jesus was very clear on that. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. It's only through me that people receive new life because nobody else can do it. Who else could reconcile all things? Reconciliation means there's a problem. It means two sides are apart and there has to be something that brings them together again. Well, the problem is our sin. And Jesus is the only one that can address that because... Coming as man, he can pay the penalty, the price, the consequences of what we've done. He can stand in man's place and receive the punishment. But as God, he is the only one strong enough to stand up under that, to live a perfect life, but then to raise again and defeat death, destruction, and darkness. He is the only one who could reconcile all things. Who he is. What does he do? He's the great reconciler of everything that is broken and it's to all things well how does he do it second half of verse 20 if you notice i didn't read it yet now we'll read it making peace by the blood of his cross that's a jarring picture christmas should be jarring to us as well when we read this maybe a little bit more so Okay, the one who made animals is born next to them. The one who designed humanity is an infant child among them. What? But then you look at how he has redeemed us through the cross, and it's even more jarring. The one who designed trees is nailed to one. The one who made ore... The one who made it possible for those nails to be fashioned is pierced by them. It should never be. It's not how someone with absolute power should operate. They should send in the army or the relief aid and fix everything. But no, look at the gap. The one who is the ruler of heaven not only just stepped down to walk among us, but allowed himself to be crucified so that we could be reconciled to him. And there's, brothers and sisters, there's no other way to bridge that gap. That gap between us and God required God coming down to us. And he comes to us and says, I I will pay all the cost so that you can know me, so that you can have new life, so that you can live as you were designed to, so that you can be reconciled. We've got a lot of people here, and I don't know where everyone is with Jesus. I don't know what your view of him is. I don't know if you really know him. Or if you're still hiding or maybe you're running away. But I can tell you this. There is no more out there that you could ever find that's greater than someone who says, you have messed it up bigger than you could believe, but I love you more than you would dare hope for, and I can fix it all. I can bring healing that you never imagined. And if you don't know him, or you're not sure about that, or that's something that doesn't ring true for you, 
please come and talk to us. Myself, Joe, we'd love to sit down and talk to you about that because it is the greatest thing that exists. It is the most beautiful story, the most beautiful picture, and it's our only hope. He's the reconciler of all things through the incredible method of the cross. Well, and who does he do it for? Grateful, deserving people, the righteous among us. He does it for an undeserving and unworthy people. Picking up in verse uh, 21. And you, that's us, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The picture is almost like somebody that's very sick and in the hospital. And sometimes when the doctors come and try to care for them, they are fighting them off because they're not in their right mind. It's almost like that, but instead we've got a knife and we're slashing at God saying, get away from me, I don't want you. And undeserving people who are hostile to him in their minds, doing evil deeds, and basically the picture is that he comes and subdues us and says, no, I know what you need. I am bringing you life, even though you don't need it, you don't know you need it. You may not even want it, but it's the best thing, it's the only thing. He offers that grace that love to an undeserving people and makes us holy and blameless in his sight. That is good news. So you see the picture that Paul is presenting here when he asks the question, is Jesus enough? He doesn't leave a lot of doubt, does he? Well, he's the Lord of the universe. He's going to reconcile all things. He does it through the most unbelievable method possible for a really undeserving people. Yeah, you're going to find something better than that out there. No way. But we tend to look. What's what's your view of Jesus this morning? Do you see this cosmic, gracious God who knows you personally? Or are you still wondering if he's enough? Is he enough for my really hard marriage right now where I don't see the light coming? Is he enough to combat my deep heartache that I'm experiencing? Is he enough to carry me through the ugliness of life, the threats I experience, the job insecurity, wherever you're at? Are you wondering, is he really enough? The answer is clearly more than enough. And that doesn't mean you don't seek help. It doesn't mean you don't ask for help from people around you when you're in hard places. But it's asking the question, what do you ultimately trust in? Do you really think he's big enough and strong enough? Or maybe you're still looking for more. Maybe you're looking for more prestige, more acceptance, maybe more love. The good news, the great news this morning is that there is more. There is more love than you could ever hope for. There is more acceptance than you could imagine. There is more standing before a holy God who makes you holy than you could ever imagine. He is more than enough. He is all there is. He is the most wonderful thing that exists. And I think when we read this passage, when we get this view of the gospel, there's a lot of applications we could take, but but I think there's two 
big ones that we're left with. And one is, if you see this picture of Christ, you have to trust in him. Because it doesn't give you a lot of options. After you've seen that, what else are you going to trust in? What is going to possibly live up to this? Is a good friend or a spouse going to meet these needs? Sorry, that's putting a lot of weight on them. This is it. This is the only thing that's trustworthy that will never break. You have to trust in this. And the other one is, oh, what hope we're given. We should be a people of great hope. It doesn't mean we don't mourn. It doesn't mean we don't walk through dark, difficult, hard things. But it means we know. We know that Christ has dealt with him. We know that he is bringing the light of morning, whether in this life or in his new creation to come. We have hope, deep hope. So where is he in your life this morning? Is he preeminent? Is he primary? Because we don't have a lot of other options. This picture of Jesus, there's one spot he goes in. And your life was designed for him to be in that spot. That's the way life is supposed to work. That is the life you were meant for. And things won't be right until that happens. Where is he? If he's not there, what is in that spot? Is it better than this? It's not. My prayer and my hope is that our New Year's resolution this year, whatever the other ones may be, that our biggest one would be that we would have eyes to see a view of Jesus that is this big, that is this wonderful, who is this powerful to restore all things, to reconcile all things, and to give us everything that we so deeply need. Would God grant us that vision? Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are not a small God. And forgive me for the times I want to make you that. Help us to see what an amazing God we serve. What an amazing King who reigns over all things that we can trust in. Would you be near to us? Would you open our eyes to see this? That we may praise you. That we may trust you. That we would hope in you. Walk with us through the darkest and the greatest in any places that life takes us. We ask this in the name of our risen, awesome, all-reigning Savior Jesus. Amen.